sometimes um, change in life, sometimes change happens incrementally, and you don't even realize it's happening, right? Sometimes it happens quickly. Sometimes it happens slowly. In fact, Friday, I was over a bunch of our youth, uh, four of sister churches, Vineyard Churches in the Valley. We did a combined youth conference this week, and um, I was, they invited us old guys in to, uh, to do a little forum with the youth and talk about ministry and things. And so I, I, I was trying to communicate a heart for the next generation. And what I was trying to say is if you, give your, you, know, if you make up your mind early that, that you're going to give your life to God, and I use the analogy, if you're going to write a blank check, your life is like a blank check, and it's like, you guys don't even know what checks are, do you? You've never seen a check. You've never used a check. And so then I'm like, how about a debit card? And then they're like, we're in middle school. We don't have debit cards. And so somebody gave me a good analogy, and that was like, your life should be like an Instagram account without a password. So I don't even go, I don't think that's a very good analogy, but yeah. And then I got to talk about a little bit later about uh, this time when God really moved in my life, and I dialed up the internet in this experience, and they just stared at me blank eyes, right? Sometimes change kind of happens incrementally, and you look, you look up and you go, wow, everything's changed, right? Sometimes things fundamentally shift in a moment, like in 2008, I still remember it vividly, watching the Apple keynote address where Steve Jobs unveiled the very first iPhone. Tech nerds are nodding with me, and it was like, la. And most of you aren't tech nerds. You don't even care. But everything changed in a moment. And you have a smartphone, most all of you, in your pocket, except for some of you Luddites who, you know, we love you guys too. Uh, but come on, get up with the times, right? Now, so sometimes life just changes quickly, right? And most of you have experienced moments, moments in life when, when there's a fundamental shift and everything is new from this point on. Sometimes it's kind of a surreal moment or a life-changing event, like, you got married, right? And your bride walks down the aisle and all of a sudden you realize everything's different from this point on. For some, it's the birth of a child and now you're holding your new child in your arms and you have no idea how life is different forever from this point on, right? Parents, it's like everything's changed. Um, sometimes it's, it's, it's tragedy. It's the death of a loved one or the loss of a relationship or a natural disaster or a tragedy. I still remember you know, 9-11, and how just this feeling as you're watching that and, and the events of that day, and if you're over 30 in the room, you, you kind of get this, or 35, and just the weight of that and realizing, wow, everything's shifted. There's, it feels like from this point on, everything's different, and your kids are never going to get to fly without knowing what it's like not to have to take off your shoes and, you know, have little, all your liquids out in a little baggie, right? Everything shifted. And today we're finishing this long series in the book of Luke. And this little eight-week section of it that has been called The End is Only the Beginning. Because the truth is, the end of the Gospel of Luke, Luke, Acts are two parts. We've been talking about that all along. The end of the Gospel of Luke is really only the beginning. It's the beginning of the Jesus movement that would spread throughout the world of a new covenant, of a new opportunity for every person from every tribe, every tongue, every nation to have a new relationship with God. It's the, 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 only the beginning of a new way of relating with our fellow human beings and a new reality of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, when you trusted in Jesus, something just as radical as these momentous life shifts that you've experienced from time to time in your, in your life, something just as real and as powerful and as life-changing and life-altering as that, in fact, far more so happened within you when you put your faith and trust in Jesus. But, but here's the tension, is that for many of you, your life, it doesn't reflect that fundamental shift. You find yourself hanging on to things that you shouldn't be hanging on to, right? Sin or unforgiveness, the right to be angry and bitter in a situation, putting stuff in your life above God. Sometimes we find ourselves self-focused or there's a lack of real love for God in our hearts, lack of love for other people. There's a lack of passion to share Jesus with people. And for some, there's an intellectual knowledge that the Holy Spirit now dwells in you, but, but there's no daily response to his prompting and no real experience of his presence. And it shouldn't be that way. And so as we go through this last section in the book of Luke that we're going to look at here today. Um, I'm going to note five fundamental changes or shifts that I think um, genuine followers of Jesus must make in their heart and in their life. Five fundamental shifts. And so I want to invite you, uh, oftentimes I just have one thing for you to remember, right? Today you may want to take notes because I have a few more. And, I'm, and what I think is probably there's one or two of these things that's going to strike you. And God's just going to pinpoint it and highlight it to you as we go through this. And so let's just um, let's pray. Father, as we look at your word, would you speak to our hearts? Holy Spirit, would you highlight and pinpoint what you want us to receive here today? Would you touch hearts? Let us be open and receptive to your word. Now we're going to pick up where we left off last week. It's the very last days of the week leading up to the cross. And we see Jesus preaching at the temple. Luke 21, verse 37 says this. Each day, Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. And that brings us to chapter 22, where we find Jesus' betrayal. And the final evening before Jesus' death and resurrection, an event we know is the Last Summer Supper. And chapter 22 is where we're going to end our series in the book of Luke. Because if you remember, uh, for those of you that have been with us for a while, when we did Palm Sunday and some holidays earlier in the year, uh, we looked at the crucifixion and the resurrection. And so Luke 22, verse 1, it says this. Now the, now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. So the Passover's coming. This is the massive festival that was celebrated every year in Jerusalem, where pilgrims from all over would flock into the city. It was estimated that the city's population would surge from maybe a couple hundred thousand up to two and a half million people packed into the city of Jerusalem. This was the biggest celebration of the year for them. 
And it was based on the Passover. Uh, it was based on the time when Moses, when God told Moses he was about ready to deliver his people out of Egypt. But the very last plague was going to be that the people of Israel would be spared from death. And the way they would do it is they would paint, uh, they would sacrifice a, a, a lamb and put the blood on the, on the doorposts and the angel would pass over. And so it it celebrates their redemption when they were delivered and the sacrifice. And um, it's going to be really significant here in just a second. And so that's what's happening. And during this time, they're they're just trying to figure out a way of getting rid of Jesus, but they're scared of the crowds because the people think Jesus is a great prophet. Some think he's the Messiah, which we know he is. And they're trying to get rid of him. Then verse 3, then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand over Jesus to them when no crowd was present. Now, we have this character Judas, and you've heard of Judas before. In fact, I'm guessing none of you named your children after Judas, right? Your cat, maybe. (laughs) Had to get that in there. But Judas is a tragic story. And what you see with this guy is you, I went through and read the different gospel accounts as I was preparing this week. And what you saw is Judas, this didn't just start when he allows Satan to to influence him in this incredible way. He was allowing the, the influence of the power of the evil one to influence him all the way along. We find out in another section he was the treasurer of Jesus' ministry and he would steal from that. He would help himself to that from time to time. And there's been this thing, as you put the accounts together, you get this picture of this guy who, he, he's part of this Jesus movement thing, and he's waiting for Jesus to become king. And he is, you know, he wants to be when Jesus comes to power, he wants to be right there with Jesus. He wants to reap all the benefits of it. And as he watches Jesus, Jesus just isn't meeting his expectations. It's not going the way. And every time Jesus gets an opportunity to become king or to lead a revolution, he blows it. And I think, this is some speculation, but I think what's going on in Judas' heart, what you see is just a short time before this in Bethany, um, Right before Judas goes to the chief priests, there's this lady that comes in and she anoints Jesus with this incredibly, incredibly expensive perfume. We're talking like a year's wages. And Judas sees this and he is just, ah, he's ticked off about this. He can't believe this waste of finances. And maybe it's the thought of, if Jesus, you're gonna just waste money because Jesus says, don't bother her. She did something beautiful for me. She's preparing me for burial. And Judas is like, what are you talking about, burial? You're blowing all these funds. If you ever want this movement to get it everywhere, you got to take it to the next level. And I think what Judas is going on, because we know the story, and he ends up full of regret, I don't think he ever thinks that Jesus is going to be betrayed and condemned to death. Because Judas has watched this guy walk on the water, Right? He saw him feed the 5,000. One time they tried to arrest him, and he just slipped right through him. So Jesus is like, nobody can touch Jesus. And so at some point, something clicks over in his heart, and he's like, I got to get something out of this. I got to get something out of this. 
And so he, sell, he sells this for 30 pieces of silver. And I think maybe there's something in the back of his mind thinking, I can, I can manipulate Jesus. I can get Jesus to step it up. Because maybe he'll have to admit or do a sign now if he gets arrested that he's the Messiah. And actually, you know, we'll get him to take the next step. Or he's just thinking, at least I'll get something out of this, out of these years I've blown following this guy. We don't know exactly. We do know he ended up full of bitterness and regret. And after Jesus was condemned to death, he went in and threw the money back in. And he died a horrible death, full of regret. And the first thing I want you to write down that I think is, is a necessary fundamental shift for a follower of Jesus is this, that you that you in your own life, you shift from your agenda to God's agenda. We shift from our agenda to God's agenda. And so often, followers of Jesus, I, I, I think there's this thing that, we, that followers of Jesus like to believe in Jesus, and we like to maybe be part of the church thing and the community and all that, But when it actually comes down to following Jesus, that's a little bit harder step of of saying, Jesus, you have authority in my life and I'm going to follow you. Jesus, that the way you say to do life, I'm going to do my life that way. That the way you you ask me to relate to my physical possessions, I'm going to actually relate to them that way. The way you ask me to forgive and and not hold anger and bitterness, I'm going to actually do that and follow you. In that, when you say to seek first your kingdom, that your kingdom would be first priority in my life, Jesus, I actually want to, I'm going to live like that. It's it's one thing just to believe in him, but to take the shift of that I'm going to follow you, that I'm going to make your agenda, my agenda. And the thing you see with Judas is he had an agenda and Jesus' agenda wasn't matching his agenda. And he turned against him at that time. You know, I think a lot of times followers of God, we try to manipulate God into doing our agenda for us in all sorts of different ways. One of them is, you know, we, we think, oh, well, I'm going to you know, show up at church. Maybe I'll serve. Maybe I'll give. Maybe I'll do this. Or if I just have enough faith in this area, I can just somehow get God to do what I want him to do, even though it's maybe not part of his plan, but it's my plan. And I can, if I could just get God on board with my plan, everything would be good. But it's about his agenda. It's about his kingdom. It's about the things he wants. My kid's really into Star Wars right now. And, you know, it's got this, like, toy lightsaber and all over the house, you know, and we have to take it away because he goes after his sister and all that, you know. You know the story. But... Star Wars is always about the force, right? And using the force. And too many times people treat God like a force. That if I can just somehow harness the force or figure, tap into the right formula, I can get God to do what I want to happen here. God is not a force. He cannot be manipulated. God has a plan. He has a purpose. 
And you either choose to line your life up with that or you choose not to for your detriment. As a follower of Jesus, we shift from our agenda to God's agenda. And I think some of you in the room, you need to settle in your heart because you haven't yet settled that thing in your heart of actually, you believe in Jesus, but you haven't actually settled in your heart whether you're going to follow him. And the two go together. The two go hand in hand. Verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. And they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. That's cool because uh, what was unusual about that is they said, you'll see a man carrying a jar of water, which is something men usually didn't do in the culture. So like, oh, okay. And it happened just like Jesus said. Verse 14, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again, again until, until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread. Now, it's, it's going to sound familiar because we read this. Or the passage in Corinthians, it's just like it almost every month when we do communion here. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. He took bread, he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, if you grew up in church, these words are so familiar because you celebrated this over and over. You, you've, you've heard them read over and over. But let me just stop, pause for a second and, and try to communicate how dramatic this moment was for them. Because they're sitting around, they're celebrating the Passover. And all of a sudden, Jesus makes this celebration that they've done since they were little babies, their earliest memories were with this celebration. And Jesus basically says, this feast is all about me. It would be like me standing up here on Christmas Eve and going, yeah, yeah, there's a baby in a manger and you're gonna go home. But actually, this whole holiday is really all about me. And then you would go to a different church, Right? If, if I ever did that, go to a different church, okay? I'm just telling you. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Don't drink it. Don't do it. That's how shocking this would have been. As Jesus, as Jesus looks at them and says, this Passover is all about me. I am the fulfillment of this Passover meal. You see, as they sacrificed the lamb, and they had no idea while Jesus was telling them this or what they were going to witness less than 24 hours later when they saw the perfect lamb 
of God. Make the ultimate sacrifice so that sinners could have relationship with God. It was a picture. The Passover all along was a picture pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment. And he stands up there and says, this is all about me. And and this term, new covenant, this would have set off all sorts of bells in their hearts and in their minds. Because they'd heard this. This was what had been prophesied for, for well over, for, for hundreds, well, about 1,500 years at this point. See, Moses introduced the, uh, the old covenant to the people. And Moses introduced the first covenant. Actually, in your scriptures, you have the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? The New Testament means new covenant. It's the same thing, one and the same. And the second shift that I think we need to make as followers of Jesus is this, that we relate to God as new covenant people. Let me explain what I mean by that. You see, God introduces the old covenant through Moses. It was a covenant that involved, how how do we relate to God in the Old Testament? You keep the law perfect to your best of your ability. And when you fall down, you come and you make animal sacrifices every year and you can walk away knowing you have peace with God. And for us, we look at animal sacrifices and think how barbaric. But in the culture in ancient times, actually, the fact that you could just sacrifice an animal and know, you know, until time to do this next year, I'm okay with God. It was amazing, right? But, but there was never an end to it. You had to keep doing this. You kept the law. And that's how you, that was your framework of relating to God. There were 613 laws. And God promises, makes promises, that if you, as a nation, if you stick with me, if you don't wander off into idolatry, I'll bless you. You'll live long in this land. But Moses, from the very start, he knows this people. He spent 40 years with them in the desert. He knows them really well. And he prophesies from the very start, you're not going to be able to do this. But there's going to be a time when God will give you a new heart to understand. And Moses prophesies the new covenant all the way back in Deuteronomy. He says, there's coming this time when God's going to change your hearts, when your hearts will be changed so that you may love him with all your heart and soul and live. He prophesies a time of restoration when they'd have a new heart to understand. And then Jeremiah talks about the new covenant. Jeremiah is another prophet that lived um, probably about 700, 600 years before Jesus, about the time they were hauled off to Babylon, the exile, because they did not keep the first covenant with God. He says, this is, this is Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And a little later, also, I will forgive their iniquity and all their sins, and I will remember all their sin no more. And see, the new covenant is all about, or the New Testament is all about, it's God's promise to humanity to forgive sin, to restore relationship with those whose hearts are turned towards him. And it's about adoption, being adopted as his kids. It's about eternal life, and it's about the indwelling of his spirit in us. See, because in Old Testament times, you would see the Holy Spirit work actively through prophets or, or leaders for, for limited periods of time. But, they, but Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 36, talks about the new covenant. 
He says, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And the new covenant's about the fact that now Jesus promises it. He says in John, which we, he says, unless I go away, it's better that I go away. And we're like, what, Jesus? It's better that I go back to the Father because I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And if you're here and you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God indwells you. And that should change everything. It should change everything. Paul in Romans says, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive, you know, you know uh, slaves so you live in fear because you never quite know if you meet up to God's expectations. You never quite know if I've done enough. He goes, no, no, no. The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship or daughtership. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. That we relate to God in a whole different way as our kind, generous, loving, heavenly Father. In Galatians, he says it this way. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons and daughters, God sent the Spirit of God into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Literally, daddy, intimate. And here's the thing we see about the Holy Spirit as you read in the New Testament. We're going to do a series and talk about the Holy Spirit more this fall. But something you see is that you can either choose to be filled on an ongoing basis to invite the Holy Spirit to, to fill you up. It's interesting language. The, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, um, Paul, or uh, excuse me, Paul, the Apostle Paul, says the literal language in Ephesians is be being filled with the Holy Spirit. That there's an ongoing thing that as you wait on his presence, as you invite him to move and be active in your life, he, he continues to fill you in an ongoing, continuous way. And John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, he said, why do we need to keep being filled with the Holy Spirit? Because we leak. You've experienced that, right? You've had seasons or moments where, where, man, it just felt like God was so active in your life, and then you leaked. And before you know it, you're caught up in the cares and anxieties of life, and God's the last thing on your mind, right? So it's this ongoing thing. You can choose to either walk in step with the Spirit or not. Paul says, walk with the Spirit, and, and you will naturally do the commands of Jesus. You will naturally love one another. You will naturally not be selfish. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And when you walk with the Spirit, literally the terminology is stay in step with the Spirit. And see, how a new covenant person relates to God is different than here's the list of things I've got to do and I'm going to check off the box and gosh, I'm going to try really hard to get it right. It's I'm walking with you and when I fall back, I've just got out of step with you. I'm sorry, Lord. I want to get back in step with you. I want to be empowered by you. 
because that the Spirit gives you the ability to actually do the things that he's called you to do and live the way and love the way that he's called you to love. So that's how a new covenant person relates to God. It's not on the basis of works, but it's through faith in Jesus, by his grace, not of works, lest anyone should boast, empowered by his Holy Spirit to live the way he's calling you to do it and to want to do it. And that's a fundamental shift that needs to occur in your heart if you're a follower of Jesus. And we also find out you can resist the Holy Spirit and you can grieve the Holy Spirit who lives within you. Jesus goes on in verse 21 to say this, but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Talking about Judas again. The son of man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. And they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. In me, not me, not me. Around the table, right? And then in the middle of this, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. I love these guys. This isn't the first time this has happened. Jesus has had this conversation with them before. But now on the, on the Last Supper, when he's communicating, it's interesting because John has five chapters for this little, you know, par- couple of paragraphs we read in, in uh, Luke. John has five chapters devoted to the seed and what Jesus taught and what Jesus prayed for them during this time. Your homework is to go home and read John 13 through 17. Five chapters, you can do it. It'll only take you like 15 minutes. And this has the whole conversation. Did you know Jesus prayed for you? He prayed for his disciples and he prayed for you, all those that would believe because of their testimony. And it's interesting what he prays. And I'm not going to tell you, you've got to go look it up. And so a dispute, right in the middle of this, they start arguing, who's the greatest? I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, that one time when we went out, and, you know, he sent the 70 out and the 12 out then. I healed more people than you did. Boo. Yeah, but I cast out an extra demon. Booyah. Right? They're arguing about all this. And Jesus, we, we pick this up because he doesn't record this, but John tells us exactly what happens at this point. And, and maybe it was spurred on by this little conversation. Jesus stands up and he goes, you guys just aren't getting it. And he picks up the basin and the towel. And he goes around and he washes each of their feet, which is something that only the lowliest of servants would do. It was icky. Come on. It is a little icky, isn't it? Toe jam. Maybe just for germaphobes like me. Maybe not you. You're cool with it, you know. Or you're just that much more spiritual, you know. But literally, he washes their feet. And then he says, what I've done for you needs to be an example. You do this for each other. Jesus says in verse 25, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call them benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? 
Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. And one of the fundamental shifts that a follower of Jesus must make is that we relate to others the Jesus way. And as you see in John's account, right after Jesus washes their feet, in the next coming, he gives them this amazing, amazing commandment. And it's funny because first he tells them he's going to go away to the Father and where he's going, they can't come. And then he lays down the, like, the one ethic, the greatest commandment, the biggest deal. In fact, this will be the thing that defines how people will know they're followers of Jesus. He says, love one another. Love one another. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. By this, this is the defining thing. You want to know what it is. You want to know when somebody looks at your life, the thing that goes, oh, wow, they're followers of Jesus. You love sacrificially. How? Well, he just washed their feet. He's about to go to the cross for them. That kind of dedicated love. You can't do that on your own. You can only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because I'm telling you, you can't. We are selfish, aren't we, on our own. And only the Holy Spirit moving and working through us that can conquer that selfishness. It's funny because right after he says this, Peter's still spun out on that whole you're going away thing. And he's like, he looks up and he just totally missed it, right? He's like, where are you going, Lord? And Jesus is like, you just missed it, buddy. So he states it again a little bit later. I love these guys. But you know what? When the Holy Spirit comes on them, they are transformed radically. And one of the defining, I mean, the defining thing about a follower of Jesus, you, he, he redefines power and authority structure. You don't lord it over others. You have leadership, great. You leverage your leadership for their benefit. He elevates the status of women after Jesus, it was Jesus and the teachings of Jesus that elevated the status of women and children in the Roman Empire. It was after that when they began to have value and worth, when followers of Jesus. The reason you think the way you do is because Jesus got the ball rolling. It was Jesus' ethic. You've been so influenced by that. It's the reason why you think the way you do when it comes to loving others. I mean, even serving leadership. If you're in leadership circles, you know that's in vogue, right? Why? Because it works. It's more effective. The best leaders are servant leaders. He goes on in verse 28. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table and in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You're going to have leadership. You're going to have authority. But what does that authority and leadership look like? Well, I just told you. I just demonstrated it for you. Then he looks at Peter and he says this in verse 31. Simon, Simon. That's Peter's name his mom gave him. Simon, Simon. And you always know you're in trouble when, when your mama calls you by your full name, right? So P Jesus has the uh, nickname, Rocky, that he gives. That's Peter, you know, Rocky. He's got a nickname for, for Peter. And then he calls him by his mama's name here because he wants to really get his attention, I think. Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift all of you as wheat. 
But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied in typical Rocky fashion, Lord, I'm willing to go with you to prison and death. Come on, we got this. He high fives John over here, you know. And Jesus looks at him and answers and says, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. And that's exactly what happens just hours later. And Peter goes away and weeps bitterly because he realized all his bravado, he failed. He let his Savior down. Some of you have failed and you've let your Savior down. We all have. And one of the most intimate pictures in Scripture, just a couple days after this, after the resurrection, Jesus appears to Peter and John, and they're back. I mean, he's like, I blew it. I'm just going to go back and fish. That's what I know how to do. Can I go back to the old family business? Forget this whole calling thing. And Jesus appears to Peter, and for the three times he denies him, three times he asks, do you love me? Do you love me? And three times he says, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. In other words, you have a calling. You have a purpose. Get back to it. I haven't given up on you. And it's beautiful. And, and one of the markers, one of the shifts that needs to happen in a follower of Jesus, we all fail. We all have things in our life that we, we let our Savior down. And when we fail, we run to God, not away from him. We run to God. When we fail, we say, Lord, I got out of step with your Holy Spirit. Would you fill me afresh? I want to walk with you. You ask for forgiveness and you run to God. Don't shrink back in shame. You know, our, right from the very beginning in Genesis 3, our tendency is to shrink back from God in shame, which Adam and Eve did. And a follower of Jesus runs to him because he recognizes he's the gracious heavenly father that loves you, that has forgiveness for you because of the blood of Jesus. You run to God, not away from him. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. And then Jesus goes off into some word pictures, figurative language to let them know, hey, there's a shift happening here. I want you to know it's about to, to change here. He says this, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. And they don't get it at all. They're like a sword. Um, they had these like daggers, you know, which is pretty common for them to carry in the culture. They're like, hey, John, you know, Thomas, you got, you got a sword, right? You got that dagger? Yeah, here, pull it out. Oh, yeah, you got that sweet one with the, you know, the inlay? Yeah, here. Look, Jesus. Look, Lord, here are two swords. We got it. They don't get it. And Jesus just goes, he rolls his eyes, I think. I don't know. He's like, that's enough. He's talking in word pictures here. And then they wrap up this last supper. 
In verse 39, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And that's where we picked up when we did on Palm Sunday. We looked at the crucifixion, what Jesus went through. It didn't stop there, did it? Three days later, he rose from the grave. And the last thing I want you to write down is this. The fundamental shift for a follower of Jesus is we follow Jesus and pray your will be done. Kind of what we started with. We shift from our agenda to his agenda. And followers of Jesus, you gotta get, you're going to run into things consistently in your life where your will and, and Jesus' will for you does not align. Where what you feel pressured to do in a business environment does not match up with the truthfulness and honesty that you know you need to demonstrate. Where the bitterness you feel in your heart, Jesus says, forgive, and you don't want to do it. Where Jesus says one thing about the way you live your moral life, but you're single and he's so cute. Where God is prompting you to go to have that conversation with somebody, but you're scared and you don't want to do it pray for somebody where God wants you to stick in there and fight for your marriage and how you choose to respond in those moments when God's will and your will don't line up will be defining moments in your life and for a follower of Jesus you follow him you follow him. And part of that means you pray your will be done. I heard another pastor say this, and I thought it was good, just at our youth conference this week. Salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you everything. Do you hear that? Salvation is free. It's a free gift of God. But Jesus says, you take up your cross and you follow me. And so three days later, we know everything changes. Hours after this, Jesus goes for the cross, the fundamental focal point of history and of the work of God is the cross and the resurrection. And the end of Luke is only the beginning, the fundamental shift that changed everything. And I hope your heart and your life are being changed too. I hope you have a fundamental shift as a follower of Jesus. And you can get to the place where you say, yes, Lord, your will be done in my life. Would you stand? As we close in prayer, I just want to give some of you in the room an opportunity to respond. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. I believe in a room this size are some that have not yet said yes to Jesus. You can respond right now by praying a prayer like this, either quietly or out loud right after me. 
Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you died and rose again. I turn from my sin and I ask for forgiveness. I want to follow you with my life. Forgive me, save me, welcome me into your family. Thank you. Lord, for all my other friends, I pray you would just show them exactly how this applies and that you would help them make a fundamental shift in their heart that they're going to follow you with everything they have. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.